You know, what I love about rituals is that rituals are, you know, highly accessible. Rituals don't have to cost anything. And rituals are a tool. And that, that was the epiphany that I had. You know, I didn't set out to write another book so, so quickly after Bring Your Human to Work when I had this epiphany that when I think about all the leaders that I interviewed for Bring Your Human to Work, that many of them, if not all of them, were using rituals as a tool to create a more connected workplace. And they some called it that, some didn't, but it was a tool that they were using. And so that's what I want people to think about in terms of the book. And that's why I called it Rituals Roadmap, that it's different for everybody and that you can think about and really map out the rituals in your workplace across the employee experience from you know how you recruit and onboard to your meetings to your professional development to celebrating milestones and then on a personal level you can map out your day and where you have your own rituals again whether it's rituals in the morning rituals to transition from work to home rituals that before you go to bed and so it's it's really very personal and you know it's exciting because it's a, again a tool that all of us can can use Good things happen when people connect. Purpose has to be actualized in everyday to day work. Hey my friends, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Gurg show. My mission is to help people get in touch with their emotions and feelings, connect to themselves and being a source of healing. My job on the show is to invite the world class experts to deconstruct the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. Every Friday I share an exclusive email to the newsletter subscribers which mentions what I am learning, recent podcast updates, things I'm experimenting with, books I'm reading and many other amazing things. You can find the newsletter link at my website https://nishanthgarg.me and i s h a n t g a r g.me and today's guest is Erica Case Erica is a workplace strategist who has worked for the past 20 years with some of the most iconic brands in the world as a consultant, speaker, author and professional dot connector. Her best-selling book, Bring Your Human to Work, 10 surefire ways to design a workplace that is good for people, great for business and just might change the world, was published by McGraw-Hill in the fall of 2018. Her second book, Ritual Sword Map The Human Way to Transform Everyday Routines into Workplace Magic was published in January 2021 and made the Wall Street Journal, Publishers Weekly, and USA Today's bestseller list. Erica was named one of Marshall Goldsmith's top 100 coaches in 2020 as well as one of Business Insider's most innovative coaches of 2020. Her work and insights can be seen in various media outlets including Harvard Business Review, New York Times Post, Forbes, Huffington Post, Entrepreneur, Business Insider and many other and without further ado please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Erica Casewin. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And uh, while I was doing the preparation, I read in your bio that you are a professional dot connector, dot dot connector. Can you elaborate on what do you mean by dot connector? Yeah. So it was funny. If you were to talk to people who knew me my whole life, from grammar school to college and business school, and in life now, and say, "What's one word that?" you know to use to describe Erica my guess would be that 90% of them would describe me as a connector and i think i was born that way connecting you know people to each other i worked in executive recruiting connecting people to jobs i've on the side set up a couple of marriages so i really get a ton of of pleasure from connecting people and i i think in many ways it was what i was sort of born to do and it's one of the reasons why i love my work in in the human capital space 
and beyond, which is really thinking about how people connect at work, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So it all sort of comes comes full circle in many ways to my role as as a dot connector. While growing up, did you see anyone in your family who is or was a dot connector as well? Well, you know, my, my parents got divorced when I was 10. And my dad, ironically, is a divorce attorney. And I remember one day we had a conversation that, you know, in his work, you know, many people who whose parents got divorced, you know, they do tend to want to create strong connections, not only within their nuclear family, but but outside of their family. Like it's definitely, there's been research done on it. So, you know, he wasn't surprised for me that I would really proactively at a very young age, make strong connections with the parents of my friends or my coaches and teachers, and really try to create these different pockets of communities kind of all in all aspects of my life. Look, maybe as a, as a product of a divorce, it's a survival mechanism, but whatever it is, I do feel like I started that dot connecting and, and relationship building, which is really what it is at a, at a very young age. So I don't think anybody really modeled it, but it was something that I just felt like I needed to do, you know, for me to broaden my own relationships, just given the the challenge of, of you know, having a divorce, divorce set of parents when everybody else at least back in that time, you know, all of my friends' parents were were married. If I'm, I'm actually wondering if I should ask you about your when your parents got divorced when you were ten. How did you deal with that situation emotionally? You know, it's never an easy situation. You know, I was the older child of, of two, you know, my sister and me. So I think in many ways, the older child sort of takes on that parenting role, which is not easy when you're only 10. You know, it also gives you a lot of skills. You don't realize at the time to, you know, to pull yourself up and to be organized and to make sure that, that you're on top of things. And so, you know, I think out of any situation, there's, there's growth and learning. Absolutely. And uh, where did you go to business school? I went to the Kellogg School at Northwestern University. Yes, and we will come back to the business aspect in a short time. And I want to ask you about your morning rituals. What are your morning rituals or routines? So I, in, in the work that I do around rituals, I talk and think a lot about the difference between a routine and a ritual. And, you know, one of my morning rituals, I would say, has changed over the years and really started as more of a routine. So I'm a big morning coffee person. And I talk a lot in, in my books about, you know, my morning trek to Starbucks where I get my, you know, grande extra hot soy latte, which I already had this morning. And about seven years ago, I sort of had this epiphany where I would go in and sit in the store and get my coffee and sit there with my to-do list and work through my list and feel like a million bucks by 8 a.m. And then it hit me one day that I hadn't tasted the coffee, which kind of bummed me out on many levels. Number one, I really look forward to that morning routine to sit and have my coffee and number two, you know, Starbucks isn't cheap. So I was like, oh my God, I drank the whole coffee and didn't even taste it. And in that moment, I, I went through this, you know, process where this routine sort of transformed into a ritual, which is something that I, that I do today, which is I go in and I get the coffee and instead of just starting to drink it and powering through my to-do list, I sit with it for a few minutes. I feel the heat on my hands, you know, rituals are very associated, closely associated with our senses, take a few deep breaths, smell the coffee, taste the coffee. And it really grounds me and, and settles me for, for the day. And so that is something that I do every day. And it has transformed my morning from something that was more of a check and to-do list 
to something that is much more grounding and and meaningful. What is the difference between routine and ritual and habit and rule? So my definition has has three parts. You know, the first is a, a ritual is something that has a certain amount of meaning and intention. The second part is that it happens with a regular cadence. So it could be something that someone does every morning, once a week, once a year even, but there is a regular cadence. And the third part I found to be really interesting, which is a ritual is something that goes beyond its practical purpose. And so, you know, what do I mean by that? I'm I'm sitting here today in my New York City apartment, and if my lights were to go out and I were to light a candle so I could see what I'm doing, you know, that's that's not a ritual. But if I light a candle every day at six o'clock to signify the transition between my work day and my home day, you know, being at home with the kids, you know, that's a ritual because I'm not lighting that candle every day at six to to see something. I'm lighting it to signify this this transition from work to home. There's meaning, there's intention, there's cadence. And again, it goes beyond its practical purpose. And so that is the, that's my definition. Have you built in some rituals with your children? Yeah, I have. You know, again, the science of rituals is that rituals, they ground us. They bring some order out of chaos. And rituals, I, I, when I was writing the book, I came up with this equation that shows us what rituals give to us, both with ourselves, with family, and at work. And it's, it's called the three P's. And the first P is that rituals give us a sense of psychological safety, you know, belonging, a sense of inclusion. They also give us a sense of our purpose, connection to purpose and values. And if you add those two together, you get an increase in performance. And personally, that, that, what does that mean? It gives us a sense of you know, our oxytocin goes up, our stress goes down when we feel connected. So when I think about my rituals with my family, you know, one we've always had, you know, for years, which is, you know, Taco Tuesday, you know, and how do you know it's a ritual? It would <laughs> seem crazy if it went away. So if it was Tuesday and we didn't have tacos, my kids would think, huh, you know, wonder what's, wonder what's going on here. Maybe the store was out of ground beef or something like that. And so what I saw, especially during the pandemic was that really leaning into some of these rituals, you know, in a, in a very scary time gave my kids a sense of, you know what, things are crazy right now, but they're going to be okay. You know, we feel connected to our family, to these rituals. And so I really saw this come to life real time over the last uh, year and a half. I found one of your articles on Thrive Global where you describe your family rituals uh, around your husband, around your daughters and son where you set up meeting time with your family about setting up what we have to do in that week or the next week and planning chores. Do you remember that article? Yeah. That's my Sunday night ritual for myself to kind of look ahead at the week. And, you know, I began to incorporate, you know, my kids, my family as as part of that, you know, to to all get on the same page and see what everybody's priorities are about the week and what we have going on. And again, it was a time to come together, make sure nothing falls through the cracks. But yeah, it really became part of a, a ritual that we looked that we really looked forward to. And I want to go back to your coffee thing. Do you go to star same Starbucks all the time, or you change locations? Well, funny you ask that because for the last fifteen years, I mean, other well, when I'm traveling um, or was traveling, I would figure out which Starbucks <laughs> was to my hotel. And I know you're calling in right now from Austin. When I was there for South by, it was great. There was that Starbucks right right in the hotel, which was perfect. But we just moved, interestingly. So my my Starbucks just changed um, about six weeks ago. So I used to go to the same one every morning on 81st and Broadway in New York City. And now my new one is at 86th and Columbus. So I really like the people there. But yeah, it's a new, it's a new feel. And I will say that in the pandemic. It's also a big change because you can't sit in the Starbucks anymore. And so it's a different experience to get your coffee and bring it home. I think you even need to be more intentional 
you know, with, with, I need to be more intentional with that ritual now that, um, I can't sit there and have that experience. So, you know, with rituals, we have to be, have to be flexible. And what time do you wake up in the morning? I would say about, you know, between 6.30 and 7. Do you go to the Starbucks the very first thing in the morning? Or what, what do you do? What are your activities when you wake up around 6.30 or 7? Yeah, I, well, we have a dog. So I have to take the dog outside. And I usually take the dog and then use the app, pick up the Starbucks since I can't sit in there. And then go to um, go to the park and walk around Central Park. It's actually a new ritual since we just moved. I now have this ritual where I walk around the park. Can you elaborate more on your yoga experience and retreats? When my son was three months old and my girls were two, I went away for a week to, you know, I guess you could call it a retreat, but I went away for a week to invest time in myself and, you know, not easy to leave three kids under two behind, but I knew that it was something I wanted to make a ritual that I wanted to make sure that I, you know, set the stage for putting my own oxygen mask on first as I, and many parents, women in particular, you know, we tend to be taking care of the world and decided that I would be a better wife, a better mother better human if I invested some time every year to take care of myself. And so that was 16 years ago, and I've done it every year since. And where do you go on these retreats? You know, all I've been all different places. A lot of them are in California, you know, where there's good weather, and it's, it's a lot of hiking and some yoga and, you know, just... I sort of make it my own, you know, set some goals in the beginning of the week to see what I want to get out of it. Sometimes it's crazy exercise. Sometimes it's, you know, one place in particular has no coffee, which is always good for you know, <laughs> once a year to get off of the coffee. So that's my week off from that ritual. You know, it's, it's less about where I'm going, but more about the intention of what I think I need you know, it could be if I bring my sister a time to reconnect with her. It's, you know, really all all different things, depending on, you know, what's what's going on in a in a given year. Since you have been to many retreats from last sixteen years, and if any of listener is wanting to try retreats this year or in the upcoming years, what could be the parameters or ways to decide for a good retreat. Do you have any recommendation? You know, I, I think it goes back to what you want to get out of it. I mean, there are retreats that are silent. There are retreats that just focus on yoga. There are retreats where there's no alcohol. There are retreats where you're hiking, you know, 10 miles a day. Um, so it's, is it more spiritual? Is it more physical? Are you you know, eating too much sugar and you want to do a detox, um, you know, how many days is it? You know, do you want to go by yourself? Is it just, you know, is it just women? Is it co-ed? I mean, there's just so many, you know, the cost will come into it. Um, and look, you can even have a retreat, you know, you could get rid of everybody in your family and stay home. You know, I think it's more psychological than, than and, and mm -hmm. what the goal is versus, you know, where, where you go. And there's certainly some nice places out there, but I think especially now, you know, with COVID and with travel being so challenging, it, it's more of a mindset and saying, what do I need right now to connect with myself or connect with others? And I have one more follow-up question on this. So when you plan your retreats in the beginning of every year, usually, so what kind of questions do you tend to ask yourself in terms of intention setting for the retreat? And how do you usually come up with those answers of those questions? A, a one question that I often ask myself is, you know, does my calendar reflect my values? I mean, how am I spending my time? What's really missing? And what's working and what's not working? You know, and it will change based on, you know, my kids are all teenagers now. I had different challenges and different needs when they were little um, versus some of the challenges when you have three teenagers. Um, you know, one time I went away right before my first book launched. I, I think it's just taking time to reflect and to say, you know, what are those 
what are the gaps right now? What could I do better? What are some of the goals going forward? How do I want to feel, you know, physically at the end of it? I mean, there could be a year where I was just so tired. I really wanted to sleep, um, you know, versus a week where I just felt, you know, from a physical perspective, I needed to jumpstart more of an exercise routine. So I think it's more about just taking the time to to really think ahead about you know what you need, what's missing, and which which place could help you know best help support what those needs are. Do you think about all these questions on a paper, or do you have just a mental exercise? I've done I have done both. You know, sometimes it's sort of in my head, and then maybe the week before I go. I mean, I'm a big list person, so I do like to write things down <laughs> um, and kind of check them off. That feels sort of good. You know, I've I've done both, but I really do. I, I think there's some real benefit in just in goal setting in general to to write things down. And uh, I want to ask you about a story from your book, Rituals Roadmap. And this story is a 7 p.m. story from May 18th. Can you share that story? I've read that story and I would like you to explain that to our listeners, please. Yeah, sure. You know, during the pandemic, of, uh, there was a new ritual that was started, which was um, in New York City. And then I, I feel like it spread to, to many other cities um, in the country and, and around the world where people stopped what they were doing at seven o'clock PM and went out on the streets and with their masks and shouted from the rooftops and took their pots and pans and, you know, clang them together in support of the frontline workers in the beginning stages of the pandemic. And it became a ritual for, for many, many people. And again, going back to the science of rituals in talking to people who were part of this ritual every day, it grounded them. It, it helped create some order out of the world, which was becoming increasingly chaotic. It gave people a sense of that psychological safety and belonging, at least in New York, to the greater New York area that we can beat this thing together. And I had been quarantining with my family outside Connecticut, kind of in the middle of nowhere, and hadn't been back to New York City until May 18th. And I had to come back because we were running out of clothes. And I came back with one of my kids and and just the experience of, you know, going outside, you know, initially, you know, in New York City, you're looking across the street into other people's buildings. I remember I, you know, started, I looked out the window and opened the window and I could hear people on the streets, you know, screaming and yelling and dancing. And I caught the eye of somebody in the building across the street you know, which was, again, this feeling of connection, and we're all in this together, and it's going to be okay. And I went out on the street and participated in it. And it was just really was it, you know, the subtitle of my book is how rituals can turn everyday routines into magic. And I would say that that moment was really magical for me. I have two follow-up questions on this story. You mentioned about grounding. It feels grounding and connected. So do you have other grounding, spiritual grounding practices in your everyday lives, including your retreats that you take every year? You know, for me, that the grounding practice that I have is really that coffee ritual, which, you know, rituals don't have to be, you know, people say, you know, they don't have to be around, I'm going to meditate for 20 minutes twice a day. I think it's very personal. And so for me, that's it. And people say, I don't have time to do this, that or the other. And for me, these grounding rituals, I mean, it can take three minutes. You know, somebody shared recently that one of their rituals is, you know, they, they let the dog out and they go outside and they just breathe in the air and feel the sun on their skin, you know, when it's sunny. And it can be as simple and as quick as that. And so that's really my rituals and how I feel connected to myself and, and the world around me. Absolutely. You know, the, the fun and the magic lies in the small things. It doesn't have to be a big, gigantic thing. Right. Have you tried meditation before or do you practice now? 
you know, I have tried it. I'm not a huge meditator <laughs> in the, um, you know, classic sense, but I think you can find different aspects of meditation, you know, when you go for a walk. I mean, it's, it exists in different parts of my life, but I'm not one of the, I'm going to get up and meditate every morning and turn on the app person. I actually like what you say, because a lot of people I interview on the podcast, they are regular meditators. So you are giving a different angle to our listeners that you don't have to sit and meditate. There are many practices and rituals you can build in your everyday lives to get into your zone and flow. So I love it. Yeah. And I think people put a lot of pressure on themselves sometimes around around meditating when all of a sudden I realized one day, you know what, I do have this meditation. And this is the the few moments where I'm sitting with that hot cup of coffee and feeling the heat on my hands and taking a few deep breaths. And so it's very individual. But I would say we need to be intentional or it's not going to happen. And so it's one of the reasons, as cheesy as it sounds, you know, I often say left to our own devices, we're not (laughs) connecting to others, you know, or, or to ourselves. And so, you know, we, we do need to be intentional if that is something that is a goal. When you touch that cup of coffee every day, do you feel in the present moment? A hundred percent. And that is meditation. All these meditative practices help you to be in the present moment. So I love it. So I'm going to try this practice to touch my coffee every morning and really feel it. I don't do it, so I'm going to try it. So thank you for suggesting that. <laughs> Look, and a lot of people really have coffee every morning. I, I often, I also tell people to, you know, why not think about like when they're looking for a place to start in terms of building in rituals, meditation or other, a question that I ask people to think about is, you know, what do you do in your life that makes you feel most like you? And that's a great place to start. So it could be when you take your dog out. It could be when you have your cup of coffee. It could be during yoga. You know, it could be during anything. But I think asking yourself that question it's why I called the book Rituals Roadmap. And then starting with things that perhaps you're already doing is often a great place to start if you want to begin to, to build things into your life like this. Yes. And Erica, you have been named one of Marshall Goldsmith top 100 coaches in 2020, as well as one of Business Insider's most innovative coaches of 2020. So when you work with top executives and leaders, what kind of questions do you ask them? You know, all of them are very, you know, the the approach to coaching is very, you know, individual and it's very human. And so I wouldn't say that there's any one thing across the board in terms of of working with people, but it's really starting with their pain points and what's keeping them up at night and then building in individual roadmap for them. So whether it's around, you know, issues uh, around creating a more human workplace, dealing with retention, dealing with growth of their business. I also think what's important is, you know, there's a chapter in my first book called How to Take Professional Development Personally. And I believe in making sure with with any leader that the more that they know about themselves, you know, their own blind spots, what they're bringing to the table, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and really looking deeper at themselves as a person, not even at work, but outside of work, it helps identify what some of those blind spots may be from a work perspective. In your two decades of working with executives and leaders, what are the successful key ingredients that you have seen among those people? Like looking at the leaders, like what makes a strong leader? Absolutely. You know, I would say that it's knowing who they are and what their blind spots are, which is something that I help them to do. I would say a huge one that has only gotten increasingly more important over the last couple of years is their ability to lead with a sense of vulnerability. 
And I saw that up close and personal during this pandemic when many you know, junior people would feel like, oh, the leader, you know, he or she has it all worked out. They're, they're leading from their house in the Hamptons or wherever they are. But the leaders who've been able to be much more transparent about how, how it's been impacting them and sharing not only, you know, sharing some of the, the realness of, of their own challenges has made them more approachable, more human. And, you know, I think if they can lead through this human lens, they're going to get the people that work for them to also have a willingness to be more open and more vulnerable. So it really is this cascading down effect. And what I've seen during this time is that when you're trying to manage people and you're not in the office and you're trying to keep the business afloat, you need to have trust. And to get to that level of trust, it is much easier to do it when the people that work for you see you as as a real human, you know, the good parts and some of the challenges as well. And it's not easy for everyone, but I urge people, you may not be able to take a 180 and, and fully open yourself up, but even giving people a little bit of window into maybe things that have been challenging for you during this time, a little goes a long way. When you feel challenged or in any challenging situation in your personal life and during COVID times, how do you approach challenging times? Do you have any support system, any community that you approach? Yeah, I mean, I have a I have people that I work with that I can go to. I also, you know, have invested a lot of time and energy into a very strong group of friends. And, you know, I actually just got back. I was away with four of them last week. And, you know, I think that we have to, if we want to return on that investment, we have to be there for others and, you know, and make time for the people in our lives. So I have done a lot of that over the, you know, it goes back to the dot connecting. It goes back to investing in relationships outside my nuclear family, you know, from the beginning. So yes, I have a wide group, a wide circle of, of close friends that, you know, that I have spent a lot of time building over the years. And I'm really lucky that I, I have that support system. That is amazing. And what, what do you think makes a great friendship work and what could be the foundations of a great friendship? I, you know, it goes back interestingly to some of the characteristics of a good leader. I mean, you know, it's, it's vulnerability. And I mean, I've, I've had friends where I feel like, you know, there is this, there's a little bit of a wall up and everything's great and everything's fine. And you never really, really get to know them. Um, because they're not letting you in and, and that is hard for me. And at some point you have to make a decision. There's only 24 hours in the day. And I think as you get older, it's easier to say, you know, and I'm going to make people, I'm going to, I'm going to really invest time in people who make me feel good about myself, you know, make me feel supported and, and are willing to invest the, the time. And and when you're with them to be present, I think active listening is a really critical skill in life, you know, but the last thing you want when you're there opening up to a close friend is either the person looking down at their phone all the time or just getting ready to say something versus actively, you know, really actively listening and, and processing what you're saying. Thank you for explaining, Erica. Then how do you help others to open up? When let's say when you are in any conversation and you feel that another person is not willing to be vulnerable or share their feelings and emotions, so how do you help navigate that conversation so that they can open up and you can create a psychological safety in that conversation? You know, I think it's asking a lot of of questions, being patient, you know, also being an active listener to, to those answers. So it goes both ways. You know, I also have found when we're in, you know, in groups and this could be outside with friends, but also at work, I mean, that's a role of a, of a ritual. So if you're with your team or with a group of friends and can say, you know, why don't we all go around 
the circle and, you know, answer this question. And there's a sense of, you know, everybody's, you know, participating. And if you, what I find, if you have people who you think won't be as open or a little nervous about it, or you have introverts, you can let them know ahead of time. I founded something called the Spaghetti Project, which is a platform that shares the the science and stories of connection at work. And it's based on a, a study out of Cornell that found that firefighters who are the most dedicated to the ritual of the firehouse meal and sitting around the table and building trust, it correlates with higher performance and those firefighters save more lives. And so for the last four years, tricky during COVID, but I would host these spaghetti dinners as a you know, the firefighter stereotypical go-to meal is spaghetti. So I would have these spaghetti dinners and people would come and talk and connect with the idea of, you know, be, bringing their whole self and being vulnerable, but, but creating an atmosphere of support. And if I had people coming that I knew might not be as open or more nervous about it, I would really be intentional and give them an idea ahead of time of, of what to expect so that there were no no surprises. And I think that's really, really helpful when you're trying to build that kind of a culture. If someone listening to this podcast is thinking that I am an introvert, then how should I connect with others on all these levels? Because for introverts, it's not easy. It takes time for them to really connect. What do you recommend? You know, I think it's, you start slow, it's one-on-one, you can be open about that you approach things more from, from an introvert's lens and not, you know, I think just, you know, being open about it and not, and not hiding that. And, you know, sometimes, you know, there, there are introverts where people think, oh, that person doesn't like me, that person's rude and standoffish and aloof, but sort of coming out and being open and saying, look, I'm, I'm just more introverted and it takes me a longer time to open up, you know, a little can, can go a long way with with just really calling it what it is. I am an introvert. (laughs) I'm an introvert and it takes me a while to build connections. And when I build connections, I, I like to build deeper, rich connections that go beyond years, believing in small numbers and, going really deep in those connections. Yeah. Yep. And in your book, I will read one paragraph from your book. Larry Fink is the influential CEO of BlackRock Financial who caused quite a stir with his 2019 letter to CEOs when he wrote, purpose is not the sole pursuit of profits, but the animating force for achieving them. What a concept, huh? What would it be like to live in a world where profit was not the number one purpose for companies to exist? So, Erica, I want to ask you this. When you think about purpose in your own life, what comes to your mind usually when you think about the purpose? And I'm asking you because purpose can be a very daunting word to a lot of people. If we don't have purpose, our life is meaningless. How should we... How should we have a conversation on purpose and what comes to your mind when you think about purpose in your life? Yeah, I mean, to me, it, it goes back to your values. You know, what, what is important to you? And, you know, I think you can think about your own values, your family values, choosing many people decide they want to go work for a company based on a company's values. You know, more and more, you know, there were so many articles you know, when the millennials were younger, you know, now they're in their 40s. So we've sort of, you know, now we're on to talking more about Generation Z. But interestingly, everybody said, oh, the younger generations, they only want purpose at work. And my feeling was, well, A, that's a good thing. And B, like, who doesn't want purpose with work? And another study, which doesn't even really get talked about as much, is the, the desire for purpose at work actually increases with age, which is sort of logical, I think. What I urge people to think about from a work perspective is not just does a company say they have purpose and values, but do they really live it? And like, are the values just sitting on a little plaque, you know, on a wall? Or how do you get the values kind of off the walls and into the halls or into the Zoom halls these days? And so 
that really differentiates an organization, whether they just say they have these values or do people live them and breathe them? Do they show up in terms of how people, you know, the kinds of people they recruit? Is it built into their training and development? Is it built into who they recognize within an organization? Is it built into the kinds of leaders that that they develop? And so to me, you know, again, whether it's personally or professionally, you know, how are we living the values that we say are important to us at the end of the day is sort of where the rubber meets the road. Yes. And when you work with different leaders from different organizations, what what kind of a struggle do you see that all the leaders are going through and have gone through? Is there any common struggle that every leader goes through? I don't think there's one that everyone goes through. I would say a you know something common that I've seen is you know if you're in an organization and it and you're experiencing some strong growth I think there is this inflection point where you need to figure out how how to scale if you're saying that these few things are important to you your culture and your values and you have five people and then you have 500 people and then 5000 people you know that is something that many leaders go through in terms of of scale and it, and and it becomes much more challenging you know who are you hiring to help scale the business are you hiring other people where your values are aligned that they can be those ambassadors of of your culture you know Alyssa Cohn who introduced the two of us is someone that i often turn to <laughs> to get advice you know on those kinds of issues because i think it's um they're real challenges that that leaders face. And for hiring, and you know, if we hire A players, we will create A A businesses, A level jobs. So at the time of hiring, do you have any recommendation that we should look for these parameters and qualities to hire? I mean, I I think that hiring. Yes, through the lens, you know, there, there's a lot of debate around, do we hire people who will be a strong culture fit? And if we do, are we hiring everybody that looks and seems the same versus more diversity? You know, I believe a better way to do it is to hire through the lens of your values. Um, you know, I, I often use it as a litmus test. You know, do you take a right? Do you take a left? Do you launch this new product, do this deal, hire this person? And the values, if they are functioning values, should help drive those decisions. So I strongly believe that that's where leaders should start when they're thinking about building their business. And, and the other thing is many, when you're starting a company, people say, oh, I don't have time you know, to, to focus on culture and values, and we're just getting the organization up and running. You know, I do think that it is something that more and more people are starting to put in place in the beginning. And I talk about it in in both Bring Your Human to Work and the Rituals book, which is, you know, start as you mean to go on and put some time into putting those stakes in the ground from the beginning. I was listening to a podcast and in that episode, somebody mentioned about Warren Buffett whenever he recruits people. He looks for three qualities. One is intelligence, second is initiative, and third is innovation. If someone has these three qualities, innovation, intelligence, initiative, then he would move forward with that person. Yeah. And again, it's it's, it's different for different organizations, but he puts that stake in the ground and vets people based on those three eyes, you know, which, which. Clearly, yes. as we know, has worked for him. <laughs> so, Erica, what are your values in professional world and in your personal life? I am someone who puts relationships first. I would say that's something that's that's really important to me. And when I think about how I'm vetting the decisions that I'm making, that is a big part. I would say I'm someone that really focuses on collaboration and not trying to do everything alone. I think we are better together. And I would say that an overarching theme 
is, and it goes back to what I said at first, but when, when people say, you know, what does it mean to bring your human to work? I would say if there's one theme that cuts across the way that I think about pretty much everything in my life, it's about honoring relationships. So it's honoring relationships with people that I work with, my family, my kids, clients, but also honoring that relationship with myself. Is there any instance from your life when you had to struggle or struggle with your value of relationship? If any instance comes to your mind when you really had to, you were challenged regarding your value of relationship. Yeah, I mean, I, I think because of my focus and dedication to many relationships, I can get let down by them as well. And to sort of figure out, okay, you know, this person really let me down. To, are my expectations too high? Or, you know, do we really, is this a relationship that maybe it has run its course? And, you know, we just have different opinions around what we need to invest in that relationship to make it strong. So yeah, I have, I have high expectations and have certainly been been let down. And in some cases have had real direct conversations about it. You know, it's gotten better. And in other situations, you know, I've sort of decided that it's run its course and that's okay too. You know, we, we grow and we move on. And which is normal. It happens all the time in all the relationships. Sometimes a relationship just run its course and it's time to let it go. 100%. Again, as I said before, there's only... You only have, have so much time in the day, in the week, in the year, and you want to be around people that, met, that make you feel good and strong. Yes. And when people read your book, Rituals Roadmap, how do you want people to approach your book? You know, what I love about rituals is that rituals are you know, highly accessible. Rituals don't have to cost anything. And rituals are a tool. Um, and that, that was the epiphany that I had. You know, I didn't set out to write another book so, so quickly after Bring Your Human to Work when I had this epiphany that when I think about all the leaders that I interviewed for Bring Your Human to Work, that many of them, if not all of them, were using rituals as a tool to create a more connected workplace. And they, some called it that, some didn't but it was a tool that they were using. And so that's what I want people to think about in terms of the book. And that's why I called it Rituals Roadmap, that it's different for everybody and that you can think about and really map out the rituals in your workplace across the employee experience from you know how you recruit and onboard to your meetings, to your professional development to celebrating milestones. And then on a personal level, you can map out your day and where you have your own rituals. Again, whether it's rituals in the morning, rituals to transition from work to home, rituals that before you go to bed. And so it's, it's really very personal. And, you know, it's exciting because it's, a, again, a tool that all of us can, can use. I am a huge believer in creating rituals. So is there any ritual that you would have developed recently? Any new ritual that comes to mind? So yeah, a new ritual that I created during the pandemic really stemmed from asking myself sort of that question, does my calendar reflect my values? And, and how am I spending my time right now? And one of the things that I realized was that, you know, I was seeing my family, you know, 24 seven, because nobody was leaving the house. And that was great. <laughs> but I wasn't seeing some of my friends and really missed those connections. And so I started a new ritual during the pandemic where once a week I would go for a walk with a close friend um, who lives in a different state, different time zone. And we at the same time every week and, and we'd go for a walk and we were not on FaceTime. You know, I think we're all burning out from all the Zooms. And she, we would just be on the good old fashioned phone with our earbuds and we'd go for a walk and I'd get my 10,000 steps in. So that was a bonus. And we would just catch up. And it was, it really became an important, you know, grounding ritual during this time to keep me connected to someone that I usually see in person a lot, but haven't been able to see. How many calories do you burn in 10,000 footsteps? 
I have no idea. <laughs> I guess I'd have to look at my app. Which which app do you use to track? Um, well, I have the the sleep app, that Aura, the Ring, and then I and then I also just have whatever comes on my iPhone, like where you click on the little heart thing and it tells you how many steps. I don't know how scientific that is, but it does sort of keep me honest. I've been planning to get this Aura Ring. How's your experience with this? I like it. I mean, I'm a good sleeper. I think. It depresses people who aren't good sleepers, but it does really show you, you know, how well you've slept and, you know, all different things. So I kind of like it. I think the cost is around $250, right? I think so. I don't know. I got it as a gift, so I'm not sure. All right. So I'll take it as a recommendation from you. (laughs) And how many hours do you sleep on a good day? I'm an eight-hour sleeper. Eight-hour sleeper. And what time do you go to bed? I'm like 10 to... 10 to 6, 10 to 7, sometimes 9 hours. I go to bed early. I'm early to bed, early to rise. Awesome. I'm having fun in this conversation with you, Erica. Is there anything else you would like us to explore? I think what I would love people to think about and you know, to hear from them if they're open to it, and you can reach out after the podcast, is I think a lot of the things that we've been talking about, both in your personal life and at work, are going to become even more important as the world begins to open up and as people begin to go back to the office in person. I don't like to say return to work because I think we've all been working more than ever, but there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress as companies begin to communicate, some doing it well, some doing it not so well, how, when, where, and even why we're going back to work. To the office. And so I think thinking about grounding rituals, both for yourself, with your family, with your team, are going to be more and more important. And we've got to be intentional about putting some of those systems and processes in place to support us, especially over the next six months as as we begin to think about how this is all going to play out. And we don't know how it's going to play out yet. We do not know. And uh, where would you like our listeners to find you online? They can find me on my website, which is just my name, Erica Keswin, K-E-S is in Sam, W-I-N.com. Check out my podcast, which is called Left to Our Own Devices. And, you know, my Instagram is just my name. I'm always trying to get more followers than my three teenagers, so I could use all the help I can. <laughs> Great. And I will put all the links in the show notes at nishantgurg.me slash podcast. So, Erica, thank you so much for an amazing, fun-filled conversation. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. And hopefully next year, I'll see you in Austin. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you've got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again.